Can you set the stage a little bit so people understand what happened? In 1969, 14 black student athletes were kicked off their university's American football team for planning a show of support against racism. We were really protesting our treatment on the field. Amazing Sports Stories from the BBC World Service tells their story. We became brothers that day when you did that to us. We made a change. Fighting for what we deserve. Search for Amazing Sports Stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts. This is The Word, a new podcast from Slate. I'm your host, Jason Johnson. Have you ever been canceled for using the wrong words, having the wrong ideas, being racist when you didn't intend to be? Often viewed as a weapon of the woke left, cancel culture is now being criticized by everybody from centrist Democrats to even some people who are occasionally called progressive. If, if, if all you're doing is casting stones, uh, you know, you're, you're probably not going to get that far. So is cancel culture really out of hand or is it just privileged people angry about the fact that they're suddenly being held accountable? That's next on A Word with me, Jason Johnson. Stay with us. Welcome to A Word, a podcast about race and politics and everything else. I'm your host, Jason Johnson. If you spend any time on social media, you've probably heard of cancel culture. That's when a group of people, sometimes famous but often not, call someone out, criticizing them for past actions or alleged actions or comments they find offensive. It's a subject of outrage for many politicians, comedians, and people who do a little bit of both, like late-night talk show host Bill Maher. And finally, new rule, liberals need a stand-your-ground law for cancel culture so that when the woke mob comes after you for some ridiculous offense, you'll stand your ground. Stop apologizing, because I can't keep up anymore with who's on the shit list. Is that mob justice? Is it accountability? Loretta Ross has thought a lot about this issue. She teaches a class called White Supremacy, Human Rights, and calling in the calling out culture as a visiting associate professor at Smith College. And Professor Ross joins us now. Thanks for having me on your show. So the first question I want to ask is, what is calling in? What is calling out? And what is cancellation? Like in your class, how do you define those things? Well, a call out is when you publicly shame somebody, you know, throw shade on them, humiliate them for something you think they've said or they're, they've done or the way that they look. It's always done publicly, either over social media or in real life. But the point is to humiliate the person because you're seeking accountability. But I say, is that the best way all the time? Now, calling in is the opposite. You're seeking accountability, but you're doing so usually privately and you're doing it with love and respect. So a calling in is a call out done with love. You have to act like you're holding the other person's heart in your hand and you don't want to squeeze it too tight because you'd want somebody to treat your heart the same way too. Part of what can happen, uh, Professor Ross, is that if somebody is called out, the consequences of that is the potential that they get canceled. So what is it to be canceled? Well, people get canceled all the time. I mean, because they've done stupid things. And 
I mean, whether or not they deserve to be canceled. I mean, I asked the question of should we ever watch Bill Cosby anymore, even though he did things that were horrible and he's in prison for them. But at the same time, I have to acknowledge if it came on, I'd watch the show because there's a whole ensemble of cast members and stuff. But if he produced something new right now, probably not. We have to nuance these things because you have to be able to see that it takes complicated people to produce complicated art. And I don't want mediocre people producing mediocre art because I'd be bored. And so nobody's perfect. But when you are threatened with cancellation, actually there's a recovery process you can engage in. And that is first acknowledge that you've done something wrong. Own your stuff. And then make reparations for the harm that you've done and then figure out a way not to do it again. So everybody makes mistakes. The people that I call out are the people who make mistakes and then won't admit they've made a mistake. In fact, they double down on it and then they do it again. But if you make a mistake and you want to do better and you admit you've done harm, then I'm going to call you in. Here's what's interesting about this, and I I am a skeptic of cancel culture. I mean, to me, cancel is uh, the term cancel. It comes from television. It's like, okay, this show is canceled. It's never coming back. But if people can come back, are they ever really canceled, or are they just facing consequences? Well, first of all, we don't have pillories and stocks and duels anymore, so you can't actually <laughs> permanently cancel somebody like Alexander Hamilton got canceled. You know, True. but then there was a play made about him. So was he really canceled? <laughs> <laughs> The point I'm making is that powerful people who have a large platform rarely are going to suffer from being canceled because they're still going to be rich. They're still going to be powerful. They're still going to have a platform. So I even question whether that's a working strategy for us who want to hold them accountable. But we can, in fact, engage with them. But the most people who get canceled are most vulnerable people because most of the punching in the cancel culture is punching down, not punching up. And nobody actually complained about the cancel culture till the people who were previously being punched started punching up. And so it's a real question of how we have to nuance this. I think that though most people who make mistakes, and that's everybody, is capable of redeeming themselves if they choose to. But you have to be able to look your mistakes in the eye without shame so that you can say, I can do better. And I'm one of those people that's going to help you do better. We've now reached this point where, and I'm curious where you see on the origin of this, the people who primarily are concerned about cancel culture are powerful libertarian and or conservative white people, right? You hear your Bill Maher is complaining about cancel culture. You hear your Milo Yiannopoulos's, your your Jim Jordans. It's almost as if they have co-opted concerns about cancel culture as a way to defend themselves so they can continue to be hostile to people. How do we reclaim the damages of cancel culture to actually protect the people who are usually getting screwed over? Well, first of all, you have to realize that people on the right are nothing but imitative They don't invent anything. They try to co-opt civil rights. They try to co-opt women's rights. They try to co-opt the the, the whole calling in, calling out thing. They just steal stuff and they try to rebrand it as if they're the primary victims of all this stuff. And I'm calling bull on them, first of all, because you ain't that original. And in fact, the whole cancel culture comes from the right. I mean, do we remember them 
protesting the passion of Christ or Harry Potter or even going back earlier, saying that we couldn't teach evolution in schools and going back even further. I mean, do y'all remember all the witch trials? I mean, so get off my last nerve talking about now you're the victims of a process called white supremacy that you put into motion. I don't I don't even give them any brief on that, but I do wish they'd be more original and come up with their own strategies instead of Elvising ours. If someone today is saying, I'm afraid I'm going to be canceled. I'm afraid that that, you know, if I if I wear a T-shirt by this band and I'm on Instagram and we find out that that band did something wrong later, then I'm going to be canceled. What, what do you say to that person who lives in fear of cancellation? Well, the first thing I say is you need to worry more about the right thing because your reputation is what everybody thinks they know about you, but your integrity is what you know about yourself. And you have to sleep with yourself every night. So protect your own integrity. Screw the reputation. Wear what you want to wear. Do what you want to do. Stand in your truth. Be kind to people because that's what you're going to get in return when you're kind to people. But if someone wants to call you out for wearing a T-shirt or something like that, and you don't think that T-shirt is is designed or offensive to somebody, tell them to go get a life. Don't try to pretend that you care about their trauma trying to visit your story. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, more on cancel culture with Professor Loretta Ross and how it's playing out in politics. This is A Word with Jason Johnson. Stay tuned. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. You're listening to A Word with Jason Johnson. Today, we're talking about cancel culture with Professor Loretta Ross. So, this is something that hits me personally, and, and I've, I've read about you, hits you personally as well. People who have been direct uh, uh, victims or, or, or someone has tried to come after them and cancel them. We've seen Republicans, celebrities, and power brokers sometimes attempt to call out individuals with bad faith outrage in order to cancel them. How do you deal with bad faith calling out? Well, the first thing you have to do is let go of your short fuse. Don't believe every call out. You have to do due process. You have to find out if what somebody is being accused of is actually true. You can't just jump on like a anguish, you know, road rage mob and just start canceling people just because somebody you trust told you to. Now, bad faith actors, they get on my last nerve. And that's why you rarely see me appear on all these right wing talk shows. They keep inviting me because they do not want the truth. They want a gladiatorial combat thing. And, you know, I've deprogrammed people in the white supremacist movement and the Klan and the militia movement. And it's really important to make sure that you do your research on these people, find out who they are so that you can meet all of their lives with facts if you choose to engage. But I choose to deplatform them 
I won't go on their shows. The last time I was on a right-wing show, Laura Ingram kicked me off for calling her a racist. So I don't do it anymore. There's a there's a great sort of uh, internet anthropologist. You ever hear of a, a woman named Dana Boyd? No, I haven't. So she she was like an early internet anthropologist. She wrote about Facebook. She wrote about MySpace or whatever. But she talked about the concept of drama. What she said is that drama means it's performative conflict. And the internet sort of thrives off of performative conflict. People want to publicly disagree, right, in order to seek validation, in order to seek that attention. How do you deal with the fact that for many people, they want to have public conflict because that is where their power comes from? Well, first of all, we're all acting like the unpaid interns of Google and Facebook because every time you know, something reaches a million clicks or a million likes. They just made a half a million dollars. And so they're going to keep cultivating this this road rage of the Internet kind of stuff because it makes them a lot of money. I feel sorry for people who apparently lack affirmation in their real lives. So they seek it through strangers over the Internet. That to me is a psychological problem. That isn't just, you know, social media has a problem. First of all, these young people aren't fools. Old people like me, we get fooled. We'll fall into a QAnon conspiracy theory. But the young people I teach in college every day, they said, we don't believe 90% of what we see on the internet because we know people are lying. And so there's a real perverse, inverse kind of thing happening with the amount of engagement the people are demonstrating and how much they actually don't believe. But we're in, I, I hate to use this word, a neoliberal capitalist system that has an attention economy going and they are competing for people's attention and don't nothing grab your attention like watching a train wreck. I really ask people all the time, how does walking around with the short fuse really work to bring you joy? Aren't you just a permanent fight always looking for a place to happen? That has to be a very miserable way to be in the world. And don't you have somebody that can love you who actually knows you instead of these strangers over the Internet whose attention is so fleeting that they'll forget about you the minute the next controversy comes up? I mean, it's a very sad place to be if that's all the attention you can get. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we're going to talk more about cancel culture what to do moving ahead with cancel culture and and what it's going to mean for American politics and in particular young people going forward. That's ahead on A Word with Jason Johnson. Stay with us. Can you set the stage a little bit so people understand what happened? In 1969, 14 black student athletes were kicked off their university's American football team for planning a show of support against racism. We were really protesting our treatment on the field. Amazing Sports Stories from the BBC World Service tells their story. We became brothers that day when he did that to us. We made a change. Fighting for what we deserve. Search for Amazing Sports Stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts. You're listening to A Word with Jason Johnson. We're talking about cancel culture and what might replace it with activist and Professor Loretta Ross. Professor Ross... To some people, focusing on cancel culture seems misguided. It sounds like asking people who experience discrimination and even violence because of their identities to be worried about whether privileged people will get their feelings hurt or not. 
you know, is even focusing on cancel culture a good idea? Are we are we like losing track of what's important by focusing on kind of what's a, a social phenomenon? I think we need to pay attention to the underlying instances of racism, sexism, white supremacy, transphobia, homophobia. We know those buzzwords because those are the drivers of oppression. And the problem that I have is that in our human rights movement, which is job it is to end oppression, we spend too much time treating it like it's a public therapy space. You know, this is not what the human rights movement is supposed to be about. So, yes, it is a bit of a red herring to worry about the cancel culture or the call out culture. But the reason I'm concerned about it as a human rights activist is because it determines the effectiveness of us building power to fight fascism. And if we're a circular firing squad turning on each other instead of to each other, then this is going to limit our ability to take on the real opponents. One of the things that's really impressive about your background is you're a human rights activist. You've been doing this work since the 1970s. You were you were mentored by C.T. Vivian. Um, tell us a little bit about your work with de-radicalizing Nazis. In 1990, I took a job with what was formerly known as the National Anti-Klan Network, which was renamed the Center for Democratic Renewal. And it was founded by Reverend C.T. Vivian. So for five years, he was my boss. And one of the things he used to tell us was that when you ask people to give up hate, then you need to be there for them when they do. And I didn't understand what he meant. But then I started getting these phone calls from these people who'd been in the hate movement. And let's be clear, they have their epiphanies long before they reach out to a civil rights organization. Well, you don't actually flip Nazis. You know, they they flip themselves. And then if they find out that that those people they were hanging out with are not good people. And so that's why they come to us. It's not like we go inside and flip them. Don't believe Hollywood. And so it's wonderful work. But Reverend Vivian set the pace for us because he said he he started the National Anti-Klan Network after five anti-Klan protesters were killed in North Carolina in 1979. And he was very serious because he had been an aide to Dr. Martin Luther King. And he was serious about passing that legacy on to younger people like me that I'm trying to now pass it on to young people like you, that there's an effective way to beat back hate. And that's with love. And that I'm talking about radical love. I'm curious what your thoughts are on this. You know, if there's somebody who has a real fear of being canceled, it would be someone whose past was with a neo-Nazi movement. So what you're saying is if that person can be de-radicalized, are you saying there's there's hope for Trump people that uh, Kellyanne Conway, should we be embracing them with radical love or should we still be canceling them? Because I don't want to see Kellyanne Conway on Dancing with the Stars. I think she should suffer consequences for working for Trump. But you seem to be suggesting that there might be something else we can do. Well, it again depends on how far they're willing to own their stuff. If Kellyanne is going to double down and talk about her support for Trump like it was a good thing that she did, she hasn't repented yet. Right. Right. So it really depends on what they do. Now, of course, the 74 million people who all voted for Trump, they're not all Nazis. They're not all racist. They're not all sexist. But they were willing to be next to and support a racist, sexist dog. So that says a whole lot about them. Mm -hmm. But again, are they willing to own their stuff? Are they willing to say, I made a mistake. I was fooled. I was manipulated. I did wrong. I caused harm. 
then I'm going to be willing to have that conversation with you. But if you double down, then I'm going to use the same tactics I would use on you that if, you know, you were in a hood, because I understand they don't all wear sheets. (laughs) (laughs) I know what the opponent looks like. I spent five years intensely studying the white supremacist movement. That's why I teach about it now. I know what they look like. If you're willing to repudiate them, then I'm willing to give you the benefit of the doubt. And so progress might be in the form of sitting down uh, with former Trump supporters and saying, look, are you willing to have this conversation about how Donald Trump has damaged people? And if you can make that realization, then maybe we can sort of invite you back into the world of humanity. Are you saying we should have that sort of, uh, you know, I don't know, a truth and reconciliation committee with some of these people? You think that's the way we should go? Well, truth and reconciliation doesn't work without justice and accountability. Mm-hmm. It ain't just forgive and forget. Right. It's about being accountable for the harm that you've done and actively working to undo that harm. Um, I want to I want to close with this because I, I think it's really it's important. I saw you do an interview where you said, look, we're going to be in a class and some of y'all need to realize that you don't have a right to not be offended. And I think the core sometimes of cancel culture is people saying, I'm offended that you have this opinion that I don't like. And I think the mere existence of that opinion means that you should suffer financial or political consequences one way or another. And I I hear you sort of argue, it's like, look, no, we have to live in a world of difficult opinions. How do you get it into the minds of people who have been marginalized that, hey, look, just because that person is homophobic, just because that person is racist, just because that person is anti-Semitic or anti-Muslim or something else like that, it doesn't mean they have to be canceled. How do you how do you find that space? Because these people have a legitimate complaint, but you also can't live a life where you're free from people who don't like you. Well, it's not the job of people who are the victims of hate to see about the healing of the haters. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that is not their job. Their number one job is to take care of themselves. Because when they're constantly being stabbed in the same wound, they're not. there's no healing possible. But I'm saying that there are those of us who can be bridge builders. Mm-hmm. There are those of us who can be truth tellers and witnesses. There's a lot of different roles you can play in the calling in calling out continuum. And the one that I think I need to bring into this conversation is a concept by Sonia Renee Taylor, where she talks about, I'm not calling you in. I'm not calling you out. In fact, I'm calling on you to Mm. be a better person. That's an intermediate step. And my favorite calling on sentence is when somebody says something that I just don't think they should be saying, I just look them straight in the eye and say, I beg your pardon. And I just let it lay there while they review in their heads what they just said and when it landed the way they wanted it to land. Mm-hmm. And so you don't have to call in. You don't have to call out. You can just call on them. And then if they want to double down, you walk away. You decide that that's the person I'm going to work around instead of the person I'm going to work with. Loretta Ross is a longtime activist and a visiting scholar at Smith College. Her upcoming book is titled Calling in the Callout Culture. Thank you, Professor Ross. Thanks for having me on your show. And that's a word for this week. The show's email is a word at slate.com. This episode was produced by Ayana Angel and Jasmine Ellis. 
Asha Saluja is the managing producer of Podcasts at Slate. Gabriel Roth is Slate's editorial director for audio. Alicia Montgomery is the executive producer of Podcasts at Slate. June Thomas is senior managing producer of the Slate Podcast Network. Our theme music was produced by Don Will. I'm Jason Johnson. Tune in next week for a word.